This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm Mo Samson Folk, and today joining me, a, a dear, dear friend, but also only because it's the what the age-old adage, keep your enemies, your friends close and your enemies closer. An enemy of mine, somebody who consistently outshines me in anything that we go head-to-head in, Matt Schantz, who is a colleague of mine at Raptors Republic, a tea connoisseur, a dog dad, and an absolute wife guy. Matt, how are you doing today, man? Hey, life is good outside of basketball stuff at the moment, so no huge complaints, but talking about the Raptors isn't a thrill right now, but we'll we'll do it. When I asked you to come on the podcast, were you initially expecting for us to have a joyous game to talk about or a joyous past couple games, or what did you think the situation would be at that time? I, I was anticipating a victory, but at the absolute worst, I was expecting at least an entertaining game to talk about, not just a, a train wreck. So I, I actually turned off the game at halftime. It was just not good for my mental health, and I watched the second half this morning just stress-free. So, <laughs> And w- w- did that add? what did that add for you? Did you find you had more clarity looking at the second half since it was kind of compartmentalized from the first in a way that... It often isn't when you watch it all as one thing. Did it provide any extra clarity for you? Normally when I start a game, uh, particularly a game of significance, such as, you know, a a 2-2 tied game five, um, there's usually a little bit of anticipation, some energy, some excitement, um, and that can very easily twist into anxiety and then just being a little bit stressed about what's happening so when i turned it off and came back to it there was no stress i knew the result it was it was over and there was nothing that could change so i I could just kind of take it in luckily i get access to when you watch basketball a lot of the time i get a little i get a little notification and then i know matt is watching either a raptors game or some separate game and you are a serial morning basketball watcher am i missing out by not watching basketball in the morning because i typically don't but you sir you watch a lot of basketball in the morning what what are am you I missing a, are you a morning person sometimes if sometimes. uh if it's for like a game of golf or like to go hang out with friends or anything like that if it's something it, that i enjoy doing which ostensibly i enjoy watching basketball maybe not last night's game but <laughs> in general yeah, it's great. You wake up, the house is quiet, you make yourself a nice cup of tea, there's no commercials, um, challenges and reviews are sped up, there's no halftime, you can just kind of cruise through grains at a leisurely pace, and uh, yeah, it's it's a fantastic way to start the day. See, this is why you best me at so many different things. It's that you allow yourself this pacing in your life that I think it extends to everything you do. So not only have you, you've exercised coffee and you've gone to tea, which I think is objectively the thing to do. So you've got me there. You seem to beat me in head to head everything we do. And I'm like a a pack rat. I'm just absolutely a maniac watching every game as it comes live and then trying to put all of my analysis into one little bite-sized thing immediately after. Like as soon as the game ends, I'm like, okay, like get the mic. Let's go. Like run, 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 run. And you're, you're just strolling through life. Like, Oh, Hey man, how's it going? You're like the Zen master of Raptors Republic, the Phil Jackson, as it were. I'll take that. You, you just get by on your, your looks and talent and I'll, uh, I'll get by with strategy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The the question I had teed up for you though, Matt, was an interesting one and I'm I'm curious because I think you might be somebody who had a lot of this at one point in time, but what is the largest amount, largest sum of Canadian tire money you've ever had in your life? Ooh. 
it's it's wouldn't actually be all that much. It was probably when I was a kid and my parents didn't actually collect it all that much. So it was probably a lot of tens and five cent pieces of paper that they used to have, um, but no more than maybe two or three dollars. Okay, well that's a little bit underwhelming, but that's fine. <laughs> what do you what do you think about the premise itself of Canadian Tire Money? Because when I was a kid, you know how kids are always scrounging for cash. Like, my parents didn't typically give me, I didn't have an allowance or anything like that. So I had to, like, scrounge for cash around the couch when I wanted to do something. Because you can't work as a kid. And it's not like I got a whole bunch of money for birthdays. Like, I was set for everything. No, I had to scrounge. I was in the couch cushions. I looked, when I would see a Canadian tire dollar, I'd be like, can I turn this into something tangible? Does this become a chocolate bar down the line? How do I make this work? And my family... Not not really big on Canadian Tire, but I saw other families who did, and I had this friend who had a bunch of Canadian Tire money because his parents would always give it to him, and I thought he was rich, only to learn now <laughs> that he had no money, and it probably all went to waste. All right. Now that we've kind of expanded on this topic a little bit, I do need to change my, my initial answer. I've definitely had more than $2 of Canadian Tire money. There was a day walking home from school. This was probably in about grade three. I'm walking with my brother and my brother's friend, and we walk through the park. There's a river or a little creek in the park that's slightly frozen over since it's the fall. And my brother's friend dares me, says he'll give me $2 if I can walk across this thin layer of ice on the creek. And it's like, sure, I'll do that. So I walk across my foot just goes in at the final step, but I'm fine. And he gave me $2 of Canadian tire money. That was my big win. Wow. Hey, you you have always been a gambler, I see. Somebody who's willing to put his body on the line. And you do often for Raptors of Public, waking up early, grinding out those games for all the analysis. And I, see, I can see clearly it started as, as a young man in... Did you grow up in Winnipeg? No, I grew up uh, in Waterloo. Waterloo. KW. KW. Oh yeah. Kitchener Waterloo. And yeah. well, can you tell me what 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 shared experience do you think you have with Jamal Murray then? What is a staple of Waterloo and Kitchener that one hundred percent you and Jamal Murray both experienced that as children? Or something like that. Yeah. My my guess growing up is that he went to Victoria Park. Uh, probably King Street in Kitchener, maybe Uptown Waterloo. Um, so there, there's a few staple areas that you go to and maybe uh, maybe taken in some Oktoberfest as well. Wow. Interesting stuff. I've already learned so much, and this podcast is only <laughs> only eight minutes young. But, Matt, let's, uh, let's transition. I've done the Reaction Podcast, as you know, as, as I am wont to do. But... I'm ready to run through last night's game with you, at least briefly, before we talk about some more maybe macro things as far as this series goes. What were the things you liked from the the game last night? Because I I had trouble finding anything. Did you did you did you Ooh. glean anything meaningful from the game in your morning watch? Liked. <laughs> that's maybe maybe it's that's getting too strong. Um, he he definitely wasn't flawless last night there was some points where he really fumbled the ball um but really the standout to me particularly in the first half when everything was going wrong was og he, he was just uh he, he scored seven of their first 10 points i think was the only person who could really get anything going um his rebounding this playoffs continues to uh to really impress me he, he's taken a step in that regard and um how he attacks the offensive boards and even just uh some of the powerful defensive rebounds bounds that he's he's pulling down so for me og was kind of the standout but i i tend to watch him the most so uh maybe that's just my bias coming through no i think that's probably probably accurate uh, we're picking up the same things from the game i think i i also you brought up og's rebounding it hasn't been talked about it i've written about it sparingly in the quick reaction but it gets a mention and on the podcast but Typically, it hasn't received a lot of attention. That's been very, very impressive. As you said, powerful defensive rebounds. He's he's closing out possessions. And every once in a while, we'll sky in for this possession-saving offensive rebound that is 
you know, very important. And in games that have been this close, well, typically, you know, three of the games have been close, two of them not so much. But in games that are close, those extra possessions, they're super big time. And I've really enjoyed OG's performance. As far as this series, do you think that's the biggest step? Let's say we don't know what the outcome is going to be. Game six and game seven lie ahead, provided that there is a game seven. And let's say just going into next year, you have to end things now. What is your biggest takeaway from this series? Is it OG? Is it that Kyle still has it? Or is it somebody faltering? Are you taking away things from this series more in a positive light or more in a negative light? Like you understand your limitations now. I, I would take it. I'm generally more of a positive person, and, and that's why I had turned the game off last night because I, I wasn't feeling <laughs> feeling positive anymore. Um, yeah, the, the biggest takeaways are the ones that you mentioned. Uh, OG, I think that he's really blossoming into himself. Um, even a lot of the the little misses that he he has around the basket, he still needs to improve in his finishing. Uh, but those times that he misses, it's it's pretty stark and impressive how often he he collects his own rebound. Um, his own misses and so he's really taken a, a big step in my mind and then the other one is that Kyle can still be a boss he, he might not be able to uh, perhaps last night he was fatigued he's had to had a big workload at a at his age um, but when needed and on the right team he can really carry you and so those are those are my two big takeaways and um, I, I think the Pascal struggles are a little bit overblown he, he's playing a really good defensive team with a lot of uh long talented wings that are good defenders and themselves and and pests like marcus smart who just who's really good at what he does um i reluctantly say uh yeah so i i think that the big takeaways are are og and kyle i think yeah once again accurate and what you said about kyle as far as being fatigued that's kind of what i thought as well because otherwise the Raptors' game plan from last night, and I'm sure you noticed, made no sense. My stipulation, the thing that bothered me was that the Raptors in games 2, 3, and 4 had a very clear winning strategy, even though they didn't win in game 2, things fell apart late, but they had a winning strategy where in their read-and-react offense, typically Kyle Lowry was the reader and the reactor and his brain and decision-making fueled their offense to the point where they kind of loosened up the back end of the Celtics so that Pascal Siakam can find room in the paint. Fred Van Vliet can work off ball, but they reversed that back to that game one type of offense where we saw carry over from the net series where it's Fred as lead guard. Is there any explanation for why this might've happened outside of Kyle was tired and somebody else had to, you know, take the offense for a night because that that seems far too simplistic. Did you glean anything else from that? Uh, I'm I'm not particularly. The only rationality that I can come up with otherwise is Nurse anticipating Boston trying to take Lowry out. And so if you are anticipating certain adjustments from the other team, maybe you preemptively bring something in, such as have Fred be more on ball and, and Lowry more as the reaction off ball. Um, but that, that's kind of a guess on my part, and, and I didn't see anything concrete to back that up. Okay, so let's talk about Fred then. Fred, fantastic year very very impressive in the net series and has had really dominant stretches well not dominant just incredibly valuable and efficient stretches as an off-ball guy in this series like you see him climb up to 25 points in one game and he's hitting like six or seven threes it's you know it's a big deal he's letting it go from downtown and his shooting is such a boon for this offense we're also looking at a guy who is coming up on you know a contract he's clearly wanting to be profiled as a lead guard and is it fair to look at this series and say I don't think Fred is there because he keeps getting trapped in the middle of the Boston Celtics defense their length their mobility they can funnel him in there and then they can deny him the passing lanes and the seams that he's used to he typically is great at creating shots to the corners that has not been there at all in this series. It's a big reason why the Raptors had five points in the first eight minutes of the game last night. And so is it fair for me to say this definitively does, you know, 
it's like we're seeing the ceiling of Fred's lead guard capabilities. And that doesn't mean he doesn't deserve a lot of money this offseason because the player that he is is very valuable. But I, for a long time, I've been a Fred Van Vliet pessimist, I think, relative to a lot of other Raptors writers. And I think two-guard. I think of Fred as a two-guard. Do you think we're getting an answer to that question? Or do you think I'm being too harsh and this is just a tough matchup? No, I, 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 it's if you're being too harsh by saying he deserves a lot of money and can be a key starter on a championship roster, just maybe not as a primary initiator. That's a pretty like low level for considering it being uh, harsh. Uh, I, I would side with you. I, I do think that having him as a primary ball handler, um, you do kind of cap what your roster is capable of. Um, that would still be likely a 51 team. Um, it could be a second round team. And even in the right scenario, maybe you're making it to the conference final. Uh, but with dealing with a, a team of rangy wings and and I, I keep using that term for Boston because it, it just describes them so well uh, it does put a cap on what he's capable of and, and how he can create for himself and create for others uh, ideally he is best relocating off the ball um, and so playing alongside of somebody like Lowry who is just a genius when it comes to basketball or if, uh, if the Raptors were a team with a uh, a primary initiator as a wing creator, um, he would be elite in his role. But if you're counting on him to run the show, there's a cap. Okay, so I wrote something about this this morning. It just recently came out, so I'm not expecting a bunch of people to be up to date on it. But when you look at this, and this is something I wrote about, so I'll have a response. When you look at the, what would it be, the deployment and utilization of those three players, Lowry, Siakam, and Fred Van Vliet, there's a clear pattern of how they've been used. And there's a clear idea, I think, of how typically the analytically-minded fans think they should be used. And I think that it means that we're looking more towards Pascal transitioning to more of a wing role at least stylistically on offense, which allows Fred to work off ball. I mean, their two-man game has had nice spurts in this series. They've been short, but they've been nice. And you want Kyle operating as the de facto guy. But it seems like we've seen that when Kyle loses possessions, they go to Fred, not to Pascal. And it just seems like when Pascal loses possessions, they go to Fred, not to Kyle. And... That seems like a problem. What do you think about that? How they're divvying up those possessions? And what does the ideal version of that look like to you? The ideal version, if Siakam can be a little bit more consistent, is that they they would go through Pascal. Um, but right now, with the way he's being... Uh, with the way with the way his shot is struggling, um, he, he can't attack in the same way from uh, from the perimeter, um, and with the way they're fronting him in the post, he can't exactly really get and doubling him a lot of cases. Um, he's not getting the same looks around the rim, and so I, I think that it's a matter of convenience uh, of sorts that it's going more so to Fred. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of left at a loss other than that. I, I, I would like to see Pascal used a, a little bit more and, and Fred more as the, uh, the screener and just as uh, Siakam and Lowry are often used, but we haven't seen that a lot. Okay, so this morning you go to watch, you turn on the second half, you immediately see Pascal Siakam get two ball screens with Marcus All. I'm pretty sure they scored on both. Is, and then afterwards, you get Kyle Lowry commenting, specifically saying, we need to get Pascal Siakam more ball screens. Does that surprise you? Does that encourage you? Because the conventional wisdom with the writers of you know Toronto, who I think that's who we talk most of our basketball with, probably you and I as our colleagues and people from other places, but mm -hmm. the conventional wisdom typically has been, oh, yeah, Toronto will start putting Pascal in the screen and roll either as a screener or as a ball handler because that is an avenue to offense that they weren't taking very often in the regular season. So is it weird to hear them address it in the media before seeing it enacted on the floor 
because you'd think the conventional wisdom in the room would have been that as well. And you'd think you'd hear about it after it's been done. You know what I mean? It's weird to hear it talked about from Kyle Lowry before it's enacted on the floor. What do you think about that? I don't think that's too weird. We, we see it from teams off and on in, in that they address things that they're working on or that they want to see more of, or maybe there was one play that triggered that for Lowry, like you mentioned at the, the start of the second half, um, that they really want to push that dynamic. And so I, I don't think it's too strange to see something addressed publicly in the media before seeing it on the court. And maybe that's Kyle's way of putting a little bit of pressure on Siakam of, you know, we need to do this, but that means that you need to do your role. You need to take advantage of those screens when they're available. Um, and so I, I, it, to me, I take that as a motivational strategy and, and maybe less as a, uh, a, a shocking statement. Well, sorry, it's kind of leaning towards what you said, a motivational strategy. What I mean by that rather than a shocking statement is I find it a little bit strange that these conversations in-house, like they could be happening in-house, but that the manifestation of them, if they are happening, haven't been happening on the court. You know what I mean? Like I, I understand I'm being a little bit sticky on this, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to make the point that it's strange that this seems like such a slam dunk of an avenue to offense and has been in the regular season that it seems insane that they would not immediately kind of try to do that more often. It's, it's strange that this thing, because it's not like this bombshell of an idea, is even being talked about like that could be something they introduce. Like the Raptors are forward thinking and, you know, Nick Nurse typically is a guy who enacts things before the rest of the league. And even the league has caught other coaches have copied some of what he's done this time and putting one of your best players in the pick and roll. It seems like the Raptors are super late to that. And that that's the part that shocks me, maybe less so that they talked about it, but just why they're so resistant to doing that. I know I'm being kind of sticky about No, this, no, but, yeah. and, and I, I think I have a better idea now of, of what you're talking about. And during the regular season, the way it manifested was that we saw um, that action a lot in crunch time, but we rarely saw it through three and a half quarters, um, is that they used it in specific settings. And it's like, well, if you have this rel reliable weapon that you're trying to develop, why not use it in more scenarios so that you potentially avoid some crunch time opportunities? Um Whereas now in the playoffs, it's you're right. We're not. We're still not seeing it as much as one would expect. Yeah. So let's let's switch to a guy, or maybe two guys that have received a huge amount of possessions. The Celtics have given them the ball, and the Raptors have had to try and adjust accordingly. And so, if the Raptors play a really great brand of defense, they can get the ball out of their hands. But the Celtics are putting it there to begin with. Kemba Walker. Jason Tatum, a lot of screen and roll action, and they're okay with that kind of being flattened out if the Raptors are going to play it that way, and they're okay going one-on-one. -on -one. What have you thought about their performances individually? Because I know Kemba, for the most part, has been as dangerous as I assumed, but Tatum has been more dangerous than I assumed, almost exclusively because of his passing chops, which even... It would have been hard to predict this. Like, Tatum is a fantastic player. He's very good. His pedigree is really good as well. He has every tool in the box. But the passes he's making statistically is at a way, way higher rate than what we saw in the regular season. What have you thought of that power duo coming out of Boston? Yeah, Tatum has just amazed me with his passing you're right is that he i knew that he was a well-rounded player he was a, a dangerous scorer whether in pull-up whether from deep uh, or driving to the rim he's just a, a four-level scorer that you just need to account for at all times um, but some of the skip passes that he's making to the weak side or on the drives how he's finding cutters or somebody sneaking baseline um just incredible and and he, he is a joy to watch and that hurts me to say as a Celtics hater uh, but man is he fun and Kemba is is Kemba it goes back to his days at UConn he is just so dangerous he is a, a, a lightning in a bottle that you just 
can barely contain at, at his best or even at his worst, he's, he's trouble. Um, so those two have just been everything that Boston needs. Okay, so let's talk about how they've decided to defend them. We saw initially Kyle Lowry defending Jason Tatum, chasing him off ball, really getting into his lower half when he was trying to post up and manipulate that that size disparity. Then we get a couple games where OG is the primary, and they try, and if they can, they switch a lot of the screening actions. The Raptors do. If they recognize the screen and roll is coming up, they'll switch at the bottom. So Gasol will stay low, Pascal might come up, or OG might come up if Pascal's a primary. And they really flatten out, and they they make sure that if Tatum's going to score, he's going to beat one of Pascal or OG in one-on-one. Why do you think it is that we haven't seen a consistent defensive look from OG Ananobi on Jason Tatum? Do you think it is that the Raptors are just trying to avoid, hey, if we put it for too long, Jason Tatum will figure it out eventually. He'll get used to OG's quirks and rhythms, and he'll eventually, he's a great offensive player, he'll figure it out. And they always want to keep switching it. Or do you think that they're maybe pursuing something they need not? Because in some playoff series, you just stick the great defender on the great scorer, and you see what happens. Gwent Dort on James Harden, for example. Yeah, and I, I think in that matchup for, for Dort on Harden is, you know, the Thunder literally don't have any other positive options. Is is he is the one physical character character that can match up with somebody like Harden and is easily their best defender. Whereas the Raptors are kind of blessed that they have defenders across the board that bring different skill sets. Um, so I, I do think that it's to limit Tatum's opportunities to just strategize against one option. Um, so giving him different looks to, to focus on. In game six, I, I anticipate that it will be OG uh, and that we go back to that strategy that uh, that kind of got mixed up a little bit in game five. Because um, with, with life on the line, you need to go with your best. Okay, and so for Kemba, we're looking at game six. The Raptors have mixed blitzing with Gasol. Really, they when they brought three guys high to blitz it, and they were running zone or something like that, they would blitz with Surge. But if it was a two-man, they didn't really ever try to blitz with Surge because he'd get beat around the edge. But Gasol, they'd blitz every once in a while. But typically, I think the drop defense with Gasol really negotiating that in-between space really well was their best option. How do you think they defend the Kemba actions going into Game 6? Because as you said, even at his worst, and we saw in Game 2, he killed the Raptors late after bricking the whole game even at his worst he's lightning in a bottle he's dangerous as hell how do you think they handle that matchup going forward i feel like we keep agreeing with each other which might not be the most entertaining listen uh but i do think that they drop um he him driving to the rim is far more dangerous than i think him trying to pull up and yes he gets into these grooves where pulling up he will just decimate teams and and hit everything Uh, but it's still a higher variance shot than Kemba going to the rim downhill with the big already passed Um, so Gasol or or Ibaka kind of dropping a little bit and being chased around or um, ideally not cutting under Um, but yeah well you you kind of hope and pray sometimes with with these elite offensive players that they, they just miss a couple shots Okay, let's open up an avenue to controversy then. What is your hottest take about this series? And let's see if we can disagree about something right in the middle here. Oh, hottest take. Um, oh, where do I go with this? I, I'm not much of a hot take person. Uh, you, so you're putting me on the spot. Hot tea person, more like. Hot tea, hot tea. Uh, I'm surprised we haven't seen more Chris Boucher. That, that's going to be my big thing is, uh, well, Ibaka has, has rained fire a little bit from deep in a couple games. And I think Gasol's performance has been underrated if we're going by, by plus minus and, and how he's helped slow down the Celtics in, in, you know, in stages. But I'm surprised that we haven't seen more Chris Boucher in order to match some energy as the Raptors have been a little bit sluggish at times. Yeah, and so here's, I think we do disagree. I think Chris Boucher only fits in the game 
if Pascal Siakam is going, if Kyle Lowry is going, if Fred Van Vliet is going. He only fits in if he's able to complement a team because the Raptors, as I view it, have been scraping and clawing their way through these games because they have no easy offense coming to them. And even if Kyle Lowry makes it look easy at times, we can clearly see the amount of energy he expends is massive and there is a real toll to his creation. And Boucher, I don't think, is like a plug-and-play player like that. I think that he has very specific matchups that he can make work. And so when I look at this series and I think the Raptors... Basically, I, I agree with you in that Gasol has been supremely underrated in this series. The Raptors don't win a single game without him. If it was, if the center matchup was Ibaka and Boucher versus Tice and Williams the third, and then maybe Cantor, if Brad Stevens decides he wants to lose a game, I guess. <laughs> if it was that lineup, I think the Raptors are already swept because I think the difference between Serge Ibaka's defense in the pick and roll and the and Marcus Alls is so the the contrast is stark, and it's much better with Gasol, and I think the Raptors, you can't just give Boucher the ball and suddenly you have energy and offense. The game has to be progressing in a certain type of way, and Chris Boucher, while rangy on defense, is also gonna gamble. His footwork isn't super impressive. And I think Kemba Walker, if he's getting more minutes, like matched up with one of Kemba or Jason Tatum, I think is going to get burned by Kemba off the dribble or bodied back to the stanchion or under the basket by Tatum coming downhill. So I, I don't think there's room for him in this series, at least not yet. But I know that puts me in the minority. I see a lot of people asking for it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not expecting him to play a, a crucial role. And I, I definitely see what you're saying, that he is a complimentary piece and not somebody that uh, can make a difference on his own but in regards to there's been stretches without Kemba where matching him up against Robert Williams would have been an interesting look as somebody who can do who can in theory uh, do a little bit of a drop at least similarly to the level that Ibaka can produce uh, and yet still has a little bit more explosion in order to challenge those uh, those shuttle passes up to uh, to Williams yeah, that's a good point too. Is that th- there is a bit of synergy in how they how they exist, especially since Williams was beating Ibaka to the punch definitively. But here's the thing: Ibaka might not be able to play. So your hot take it's serendipitous, really, because we have to discuss discuss Game Six. Ibaka might not be there. He might not play. Do you think Boucher is the guy? Do you think they go Siakam at the five and? It'll be a game six elimination. So we see guys going towards 44, 45 minutes. How do you think that shakes out going to game six? Do you think we see, because let's pretend Ibaka's not coming. We have to, just to make this conversation work, let's pretend. Who? How do you think they make that center rotation work? Are you asking way more of Pascal Siakam and finding more minutes for Matt Thomas? Or are you sliding down and bringing Boucher in? Um, I would guess that Boucher gets the, the first opportunity and probably matching up with, uh, with Time Lord as he comes off the bench. Uh, but if anything isn't going well, then you do go small. And, and more is relied on Siakam uh, and bring in somebody like Matt Thomas to try and open up things from deep. Uh, but Matt Thomas hasn't really done anything yet this series, he, even in the few stretches that he's, he's had. Um, I, I don't even know how many shots he's, he's had the opportunity to take. So my, my guess is Boucher gets first crack and Thomas is the secondary option, but uh, we're going to see 44 plus minutes from, from the main five. Yeah. Agreed. That's the thing too, is like Matt Thomas had 10 points last game but that doesn't matter. It literally could not matter. Terrence Davis played 12 minutes. Boucher played 11. Rondé, 7 minutes. Stanley Johnson, 4 minutes. None of it mattered. Could not have mattered any less because the Raptors punted that game so early. And immediately we're like, oh, I guess we're not winning this game. Sorry. And then for some, I can't understand it, reason, Serge Ibaka was playing in the fourth quarter until he got injured when they were down almost 30. This is super puzzling. Just yeah. as far as Nick Nurse, let's let's do the Nick Nurse talk. 
Have you been surprised at all in this series with decision making? Because against the Warriors, I think let's if we go back through the the playoff series, the Warriors that was pretty flawless. It felt like his utilization of his players was top tier. Felt like the Raptors really were humming. Mm-hmm. And even though Kawhi Leonard wasn't at his second and third round level, the Raptors as a team looked pretty great. Against Milwaukee, there was a decent amount of time that we we're all clamoring for a put Kawhi on Giannis. And that adjustment came late too. And as far as the Philly series, the Gasol strictly against Embiid, that came late as well. And it seems like those were the decisions that kind of opened up the floodgates for the Raptors, and they all came late. Have you been surprised at Nurse's maybe lack of malleable uh, <laughs> material, that his makeup just being less changeable than maybe we maybe expected him to be? Because he it's he has the box in one hoodie. He's He coached in England. He played in England. He's been all around the world. He'll do anything. But it hasn't been that radical in these playoffs so far. Has that surprised you at all? Well, I, I think he's also set a different bar as to what we expect for radical. It is you know we we now consider throwing out a box and one in the NBA Finals as, as the new bar of of radical because it hadn't been done since high school basketball. Um, but we're still seeing him test and try different things. <laughs> Uh, to variants of success. So uh, we've seen some uh, two, three zones. We've seen some triangle and two. We've seen, uh, I don't think we've seen box and one in this series, but the, the Celtics are just have different weapons for that. Uh, so we've seen a mix of zone and man and different uh, assignments. So I, I think that he is trying things. It's just might be not as radical as we would, we've come to anticipate. Actually, no, I think that's a a very good response is that he's the the bar for radical, as you said, is is different now, because if there was a team that was in the Eastern Conference semifinals last year and they were mixing in as much zone and as many because usually teams have like one zone look and they throw it in for like 7% of defensive possessions, or at least that's how it used to be. It'd come in. After a timeout, it'd come in for like four possessions at the start of a quarter to jumpstart something. But this constant mix and match of different zone looks throughout the game fluidly, I think, yeah, that's that's true. We, maybe it's this different idea of radical when he's he's already there. And I was more thinking of not what we're seeing on the floor, but as far as the adjustments of what's being put on the floor as far as how he's doing that. But with the guys he's playing, that short rotation, I do agree. Defensively, very uh, tons of ingenuity. Offensively, not so much. But you know, I think it's it's cool that there's a a defensive leader out there in Kyle Lowry and Marcus Saul who kind of shepherd the team into all these different looks and they play them well. So yeah, I think that's actually probably the best response is we're looking at a different idea of radical because if this were happening in the past, I think rightfully so everybody would be would be freaking out about it. Matt. Yeah. Like if, if Bud came in to the playoffs this year and just started Giannis playing forty plus minutes, that would be radical for Bud, whereas Nurse is just a, a different level in regards to what we expect. So the tweet that Anthony Doyle made that Matt Devlin is said on air where Nick Nurse is who some people think Brad Stevens is. He's that coach. (laughs) If we could, are we changing that joke to Mike Nick Nurse is who some people think Mike Budenholzer is? Because Brad Stevens has actually been pretty good in this series. What do you think about that? I'm going to continue making the Brad Stevens jokes just because he's, he's <laughs> so easy. But I'll, I'll also mock Bud. Um, yeah, I, I think that Bud is they, they each bring strengths and weaknesses to uh, to a team and are, are right for the uh, specific scenarios. Um, but none of them are perfect. And I, I still would take nurse over the lot. Me too. I definitely would. OK, Matt. Game six, it's prediction time, brother. We gotta we gotta talk about it. What are some of the things, just the cliff notes you expect to see in the game, and who do you think wins it? 
Uh, Lowry kicks things off and gets going like he did in games three and four and really sets the tone. Uh, we see Siakam um, hopefully get into the open uh, open floor a little bit more and, and take advantage of mismatches in the post. Uh, and I think that the Raptors squeak out a five-point win um, with uh, with the heart of a champion. So that that's my hope, and we'll see if that actually <laughs> happens. But um, I, I, I don't think that they're going to go out easy. I don't think so either. Even, even though this was... You know, game five was an absolute punt. The Raptors, after that start, had no chance. I mean, they're down 27 at halftime. That I don't think that means that the, they have this kind of what some people perceived the Milwaukee Bucks to have, this kind of fold the tent idea. And uh, the Bucks, as it turns out, didn't have that either. But uh, the Raptors, they're going to be up against it, and especially if, if Ibaka can't play. I'm really excited to see... What happens? And more excited if they are able to win, obviously. Yeah, exactly. And and a game seven would be uh, threaten my my heart and my life. Uh, but I, I would love to see it. This is a series that we've been waiting a long time for, and um, Boston has been really really impressive, and Toronto has had stretches where where they've managed to counter. So I I hope and hope for the best in game six and. Hopefully, uh, Ibaka can make a showing as well. Okay, and so let's talk about the more meta stuff. So basketball is a game. There's a league for it that creates a uh, an economy inside of it, and you and I exist in that economy as writers, and now we're going to talk about not the game, but what the writers thought of the game. Most people on ESPN predicted the Raptors to win this. I'm sure everybody on Raptors Republic predicted the Raptors to win this. Where was the miscalculation or what hasn't translated that has made this series so difficult for the Raptors? Did we miss something or is just something not there? Um, The place that I've really seen Boston shut down what the Raptors are trying to do is their transition defense has been the best I've seen and and how they track players back uh, and how they uh, they always get one or two men men back first uh, so that's what I think I missed is I didn't anticipate um, them shutting down the Raptors transition scoring to this degree um, but I also went into it thinking, I, and even just reading all those uh, different predictions, I think most people had it going six or seven. And when they say seven, it's it's a toss-up. They they don't actually feel all that strongly one way or another. And one team just has a you know one or two better shots. Uh, so yeah, I, I I don't think that anything in particularly was missed. But Boston has played their game plan to perfection. That was the point where I tell you. I got away without giving a prediction. I said, I don't do predictions. I do art. And uh, so I didn't put one in the round table, luckily. Yeah, (laughs) you you and Kelsey. Yeah. Cowards, the both of us. (laughs) But I'll say the other thing that I think everybody missed out too was something that you and I touched on was Tatum's passing. The Raptors have one of the most impressive blitz defenses of, I would say, the last 20 years. And we're looking at a team that specializes in if they want to shut down a star, they can really get after them. And Tatum being closer to Doncic's level of passing than Kawhi's level of passing in this series has been a hell of a thing to happen. Like the Raptors, when they blitzed Kawhi, it freaked him the hell out earlier in the season. He took 11 shots. He made two of them. He didn't pass the ball particularly well. When the Raptors tried to run that same offense against, or sorry, defense against the Mavericks, Luka Doncic predicted like every single rotation, tore them to pieces with hockey assists and just predicting what they were going to do and beating them to the punch. And they got, they got crushed. That was impressive as hell. And to see Tatum, like just for example, when he came downhill and you see Tice start to drop and Tatum collects it and is already stepping towards Tice like he's going to give him the chest pass, as soon as he sees the guy go to tag the roll man, the ball is sent to the opposite corner where the tag guy was coming from. So it's the moment that they surrender their their momentum 
is the moment that Tatum makes that pass. That read, while the guys like OG Ananobi is hounding him from the back and also being able to square up for a jump shot at the same time is beyond impressive. He Tatum has shown me a an extreme level of superstardom in this series. It's blown yeah. my mind, to be quite there, honest. There's a calmness to the way that he's playing right now that um, nothing is really shaking him. Everything seems to be in slow motion, and that passing has... Uh, we we've always talked about his scoring and knowing that that's that's something that he can do and he's been a really really high level defender in the NBA as well. Uh, but I haven't seen him pass like this before. And, and granted, I haven't seen every Celtics game. I, I've probably watched twenty twenty five of them in total this year. Uh, but yeah, it, it's just incredible the way that he's picking them apart. Yeah, agreed. Okay, Matt. Before we get out of here. Is there anything else happening in the NBA that you find particularly interesting that you'd like to say into a microphone? Ooh. Uh, as far as the playoffs right now, um, the Bucks' inability or unwillingness to extend their, their main rotation is still shocking to me, even though we've seen it time and time again. Um, and the way that the Heat are able to attack them. Um, I, 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 coming into this series, I, I did pick Heat and Six just because the, uh, the Bucks haven't been themselves and the Heat were really rolling. Um, but I didn't anticipate it being this easy for them. Um, but with that said, I think whoever comes out of Toronto, Boston is going to the NBA Finals because I, I really don't expect the Heat to have that same advantage over, or, over either Toronto or Boston. Okay, I, I agree with the Boston-Toronto finals thing, but you chose Heat and six. That impresses me because I thought the Heat had no business winning this series. And I don't know if I was overrating the Bucks to any degree, but I definitely underrated the Heat a little bit. Like, I, I love Jimmy Butler. I love Bam, but I maybe... Un and I really, I revere Goran Dragic's game. I think he's fantastic. <laughs> I think I underrated Hero a little bit. I think I underrated Robinson a little bit and maybe to some degree Iggy. But I, I thought the Heat had no business. So if you could give me the cliff notes of what you think the Heat do and I'll see if I learn anything because you seemingly are going to accurately predict a five seed beating a one seed. So I'd like to hear what you think. Um, I gave them a huge coaching advantage. I think Spo is just incredible at what he does and, and would definitely be able to uh, strategize better than Bud. Uh, and so that was where it started. Uh, but two, the Bucks and their, their whole strategy is to wall off the paint and, and to kind of prevent people from attacking. And the Heat have some flamethrowers from deep. So I, I figured that their challenges in covering Duncan Robinson running around screens would really be uh, a mismatch for them and would cause them to fail in other ways. And despite me not liking him, Jimmy Butler is a is a real a-hole and a problem. And so I, I figured that between him and Bam, um, they would make life challenging on Giannis uh, and challenging on Milton. And frankly, I, I don't, despite everything that they did this season, I don't trust the Bucks supporting cast all that much. Bledsoe fails in the playoffs time and time again. Um, Lopez's three-point shooting regressed significantly and, and hasn't been the same weapon that it was last regular season. Uh, and so, yes, they dominated in the, in the regular season, but they have to go up against a pretty good team in the Heat, strategizing for them for four to seven games in a row, and only them. That seems that seems about right. That's I had to I had to dig deeper into it from my initial prediction of like, oh, the Bucks will handle the Heat. It'll be simple. After the Heat won the first two games and I decided to write about that matchup for a minute basketball, I was like, Man, this really did not bear out in the way that I expected. And once again, Matt, it seems at the end of the podcast we've come to a version of life where you best me at something in the prediction <laughs> game. You've you've done it again. How do, how do you feel? It it feels mighty good to defeat you in any way. Uh, but what I, what I've learned over time is that if you predict an upset and it comes right, 
that will be remembered. If you predict an upset and it goes wrong for you, well, nobody really cares because you went out on a limb. So I, I, I think that I just kind of went with that mentality to sway me over the top for the heat. And uh, but I, I don't, I still don't give them much of a chance against either the the Celtics or the Raptors. You keep playing it fast and loose with predictions like that. ESPN <laughs> is going to call you with a job on TV. I tell you that much. <laughs> Max Kellerman, who do you want if Mars has the laser beam pointed at Earth? Steph Curry or Andre Iguodala? I'm taking Iguodala. <laughs> you got to let it fly, man. See, I, I still... I, I have limits on where I'm willing to, to make bold predictions. As I said, I'm not much of a hot take, but if I'm torn between two things I, I might just lean the uh the more unexpected but there's some obvious things like curry being the best shooter in the world that you just need to rely on oh so you wouldn't take iguodala disappointing disappointing I, I i wouldn't even ha- have traded for him this season no i i'm not a big fan of iguodala's game not not at this point i think he had great years but and also him as a shooter are you kidding me are you insane we have OG Ananobi. Why would we ever need Andre Iguodala? But anyway, Matt, we, we've come to the end of this this little wonderful chat that we've had. Have you been drinking a tea erstwhile? No, I've already had two or three cups of tea today, and so I'm I'm just drinking in some water at the moment. What particularly what particular flavor was the tea? Uh, lately I've been just going with a, a standard Earl Grey and then, uh, mixing in another, um, orange Pico as well as a, a nice simple beverage. Uh, I ran out of Roybus recently and need to pick up some more of that. That's, that's, uh, going to be a nice evening tea. Is your tea drinking at all? Is there a superstition in tea drinking and how the rappers do? Is there a collinearity there? <laughs> None whatsoever. No, um, I'll I'll sometimes make myself a cup of tea at halftime to just kind of uh, settle and relax. But for the most part, my tea drinking is a is a morning activity, and then occasionally before bed. Very nice. Once again, strolling through life leisurely at your own pace. Matt Shantz, thank you very much for coming on. The floor is yours, sir. Tell the people what they need to know what they should be reading, listening, or, you know, you can direct them to do whatever you want. I'm sure they're at your mercy. Yeah, as always, read Raptors Republic. That's where you can find my stuff when I actually put something out. It's been a while. Um, Really, uh, I I encourage people to sign up for Sam and Lewis's mailbag, Minute Basketball. That's a quality read. Uh, And then just we're, we're a stacked team of writers at Raptors Republic, and I'm fortunate to even be mentioned in the same breath so uh check out what people are doing thank you thank you very much matt my pleasure all right listener you don't have to support me if you don't want to listening to this podcast is already tons but as matt said if you want to stay in tuned with the nba wide stuff lewis Zatzman and i do a newsletter called minute basketball and we think it's pretty great and also Just as a heads up, we are commissioning some specific and awesome as hell artwork that somebody will be able to get at some point. So just uh, stay tuned for that. And if you want to to get ahead of it, go subscribe to Minute Basketball right now. But anyway, Matt, thank you very much for coming on. Listener, thank you very much for listening. It's been an absolute pleasure, Matt. And listener, enjoy your day. But whether you're getting into this in the morning or at night— Have a blessed day and goodbye.